Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. So all of you women, thank you for leading us this morning. Uh, This was completely unplanned, but we also have a woman who's going to preach this morning. So I want to invite Krista Milan up uh, this morning. So Krista has been a part of our church for several, she doesn't know how long, several years, yeah, Uh, but is a part of our interpretive communities as well. And so I asked her if she'd preach and she, she said yes. And so here she is. Everybody say good morning to Krista. All right. All right, the other thing is we're, we're going full-on Baptist here. I'm, I'm seeing people hot. Uh, so if you want to open windows that are near you, feel free to do that, uh, those of you who are on the side. So uh, let me pray for Krista, and then it's all yours. Good. Jesus, thank you so much um, for the gift of hearing from different voices within the family of God. Thank you for the different perspectives that you give us, Lord, uh, the different experiences we have, not only in in life, but with you. And so, Lord, uh, we just ask your blessing on Krista this morning, uh, trusting, Lord, throughout this week and even before you've been preparing her heart, and Lord, that you've also been preparing our hearts, Lord, to receive what you have for us today. And so we commit uh, these things to you and just ask your blessing on her and us as we are together in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm really glad everyone else looks hot too because I thought it was just me. I was like, I didn't realize I was that nervous, but I'm glad I'm, I'm right there with you. So maybe you're all nervous too. <laughs> yeah, that was nervous laughter, I can tell. <laughs> all right, so a little bit about my family. My grandma really likes learning about family history and collecting items related to family members. And she has this one postcard in her collection that I have always really liked. It's a simple postcard, sort of a nondescript picture on the front and the back. The message is really simple. It says, hello, Lily, how are you? It was wet this week. See you Saturday. Not really a very impressive message, right? You know, you think like in the age of phone calls and texts, you could have just called or texted the same message and that would have been simple enough. But let's add some context to this. This postcard is over 100 years old. It was written in the early 1900s by my great-great-grandfather, Maris, to a woman named Lily, whom at that time he eventually was not married to, eventually married. They both lived in Lancaster County, worked on a farm, and having only a horse for transportation and being busy on the farm during the week meant that they didn't get to see each other very often. So this postcard is an expression of love. It has no poetry or no great professions of love. It could have been written to his farrier as easily as to his... his, um, woman that he was courting, but it's very general. Um, But I like it because it shows that this farm boy took time during his week to find a postcard, write in it, send it off to a girl he was going to see later that week. And we don't know if there was a response. It's the only postcard that survives. Maybe they talked on Saturday. Maybe that was the only postcard he ever sent. I don't know. We don't know the whole context. But for me, this postcard is an icon of God's love. And this story introduces the idea of icon that I want to talk about a little bit later this morning, but it also illustrates the importance of context. 
while showing that something from the past can be meaningful and relevant today. Clearly it's not you know, something written to us directly or to me directly, um, but it's something that shows this, this meaning of love within my family's history. The reading for today comes from 1 Corinthians, and this is originally a letter written by Paul to a group of churches in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And last week, Joshua introduced you to the idea that Corinth had once been a Greek city that was leveled. Um, it remained sort of dead for about 100 years or so, and then the Romans repopulated it, bringing people from all over the empire to fill the city. So it was made up of a bunch of people who didn't really know each other, um, but were also striving for finding their place within the empire. Uh, mostly freedmen or people who didn't really have a high place other places in society, and were sort of trying to gain their way and find their way up. So uh, to read the scripture, I want to invite Michael and Heather Bowers up to join us this morning. And as they're reading, I want you to imagine something. And I know some of you just groaned, but it's okay. Imagine that you were like the people in ancient Corinth. Imagine you were sitting in a room with a bunch of people you didn't grow up with. Imagine that you all came from different places. And imagine that you're all trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ in your lives today. And then imagine that what you're about to hear is going to help you figure out how to live out that way of following Christ. Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So, what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, but some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods. And their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, they won't be won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Thank you, Michael and Heather. If you don't have your Bibles open, you can turn it to 1 Corinthians 8. I probably should have said that before, right? But we're in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 13. And Michael and Heather just read this for us. Um, 
And you've probably heard it before if you've been in the church for a while, but this is also a passage where there's a lot of stuff here. Um, and I'm, I'm told I don't have time to go through all of it and you don't want to sit through all of it, but please feel free to have it open in front of you because I'm going to reference different pieces throughout this morning. Uh, this is something that I've been reading a lot over this week, and so as I'm realizing this, right, like, as you preach, you have read the scripture a lot, and then you only give bits and pieces when you uh, talk on Sunday morning, whereas you have, are just coming to this with fresh eyes. So please take some time to review it for yourself uh, as we go throughout this morning. So for a few weeks here at Lancaster BIC, we have been looking at different passages from this letter to the Corinthians. Last week, Joshua mentioned that Corinth had been this Greek city, and uh, that was then leveled and rebuilt by the Romans. And one commentator said that characteristics of this city, they had three characteristics, that there was ruthless competition, that people were obsessed with rank and status, and that people were concerned with expressing public piety. And it's this last characteristic of public piety that is relevant for the passage today, or that I'm going to pick up on. In Roman society and Greek society before that, religion was not a concept that had any meaning for people, at least not in the way we talk about it today. They had gods and lords and many deities, and then there was also the emperor, and who knew what he was? They offered sacrifices, and they had feasts, and they made sure to keep on the good side of the deities if they could. Everyone followed multiple gods. This was very normal. It was a part of their everyday life, not something uh, separate. And you wouldn't ask somebody, what religion are you? Because everyone just did whatever was good for them and whatever gods were relevant to them. This is something Paul picks up on in verse 5 when he says that others think about many gods and many lords. Paul isn't saying, well, we know that there are many gods and many lords. He's saying some people believe that there are. And then he goes on to say, we know there is one God. But that's not something everyone knew at that time. And really this idea of being part of a different religion was not something people really thought about. Religion was based on what people did, not what they believed. So the idea of beliefs has come to us in Western Christianity through the Enlightenment. But for the Greeks and Romans at that time, religion was something that you practiced, something you enacted. It didn't really matter what you believed. Maybe if you ask people what they believe, they might give you like a confused look and say, oh, I don't know, but ask them what they did or the last time they went to a temple or a festival. Oh yeah, last week I went here, then yesterday I went here, and they would tell you everything that they did and which God they had connected with that week. One of the things that people did was this practice of temple meals. So the temple feasts were social events, but they were also held in a specific temple connected to a specific God. People gathered together for the purpose of honoring a God. And then they had this, this sacrifice and then this following feast. So there were three parts to this. There was a preparation part, and then the actual sacrifice of the animal, and then the feast for everyone. So you can imagine this, this takes a long time for this to happen. Um, and as this is happening, people are talking. They're getting to know one another. This is sort of the social section. But also people were told that the God was present there with them because what they're doing is to honor that God. And so the God is joining in their fellowship with one another. And eating this meal to, together united people with a God. It also united them with each other, especially in a city where people came from all over, uh, many different places. They didn't have a connection to one another, so finding someone who worshipped the same God that you did for maybe similar reasons would have been a connection point for people. And before, um, so now we're going to jump to Paul. So this is what's happening in Corinth. This is their normal life before Paul came and as Paul's there and after Paul leaves. But before Paul arrived in Corinth, he had been traveling around to other cities. And before that, he had been in Jerusalem. 
And there was this question in Jerusalem of, okay, there's all these, all these Gentiles who are becoming believers and following Jesus Christ, whereas before they had been all Jews. And so this was a new thing um, for people who are following Christ to say, well, should the Gentiles also have the Jewish laws and customs on top of following Christ? Or what does it actually mean to follow Christ and to be part of this group of people that they began calling Christians? This was a little bit different, and it caused a lot of tension in the church. We don't know what that's like, right? But they, they had tension. So uh, what they did was get a council together and said, all right, let's decide what we're going to do. So this council in Jerusalem discussed what should happen for the Gentile believers. Should they follow all the Jewish law? They decided no. But they said there are four things we want all of these Christians to hold to. So I'm going to read this from Acts 15, verse 29. The council decided that you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Paul himself was actually commissioned to carry this message to all the other cities that he went to as he's planting churches and uh, forming groups of new believers. And eventually he went to Corinth and passed along this message, presumably, including the part about not eating idol food. Then he left for another town and formed a new group of believers there. But he keeps writing and connecting with people in Corinth because they have questions, and so they're writing letters to him, letters which have been lost, and so we can only guess at what they said. But it seems that in his absence, some Christians decided to go to these temple meals and eat meat there because their minds had been changed. They knew that the idol really meant nothing. It wasn't really a god, and, so, and God didn't really care what people ate. It said meat was not a concern. So they had, they had this knowledge of what would happen and decided to practice going to these meals without connecting any of it to the rest of their lives. But that wasn't the worst part for what Paul was talking about. They weren't just going on their own. It seems that they were trying to convince other Christians to go along with them. But the other Christians weren't as confident as they were. The other Christians had, were still so used to these practices from before that they really believed that, the, that gods had some power, these idols had some power. And so Paul says this is a problem in encouraging these other people to go. Um, this is not good. So this happens in many ways today. In our interpretive community gathering this week, people mentioned several examples where they had experienced uh, something similar from others or maybe things that they had heard from others where they were told that Christians we're trying to get other Christians to do things that they didn't feel comfortable with. Not necessarily good or bad, but just not comfortable. Uh, one person said, you know, some Christians have been told you shouldn't drink alcohol. That's not what good Christians do. And so if they were invited to have a drink, they would feel uncomfortable. They would feel like it wasn't right. Um, and so that was creating some angst within themselves. Another person talked about a family member who had um, items were being passed down and they had items from a different religion. And one family member did not want to have anything to do with that, wanted to be completely distanced from that religion. And so those items were, had some meaning to them in that way. Um, and so in each of these examples, and there might be others that you think of, where Christians have different ideas of what, what should happen, we're all still learning from God in some area of our lives. Paul uses this idea of weak Christians um, or weaker, weaker family members and I don't always know that I like that language because it's like, well, you know, those people over there, they're, they're just not strong enough yet. They're learning. But I think what Paul really means is the fact that, you know what, there's all some area where we can grow in God. 
And so I think of weakness as an opportunity for us to see more of God's grace and mercy and for us as Christians to give grace and mercy to that person. Because I think there's an area in all of our lives where we have that, that one spot where we need to grow. Um, maybe we are stronger and feel more confident in one area, but there's always something that God needs to work on within us. So um, we might not be talking about idols and, and temple festivals, but this is the context that Paul is working with today. And I think that often the American Christian Church has used this passage in 1 Corinthians as a sort of warning to take responsibility for other uh, Christian family members. As in, you know, like, watch out for those weaker Christians. Make sure you don't harm them. It is your responsibility to take care for them. And this comes from the end of the passage in verse 9 and 10, which says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So that stumbling block is the key that people pick up on. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat with a sacrifice to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. In some ways, this isn't a terrible message, but it can come across as a message of judgment, and it can lead to other extremes within Christian communities, one where maybe people like sneak around and try to hide what they're doing because they don't want someone else to see. Or the other extreme is that there's that person who's in everyone else's business all the time. Like, did you do that? Did you do that? I saw that. Maybe you should stop that. Or, hey, somebody's laughing, right? You've, you've had that person, right? Another extreme is caring about appearances, right? Like, okay, do I look good? Do I look like I'm all put together, that, er that I'm okay, everything's all right, and everyone can see I have nothing wrong in my life? But maybe you're neglecting what's going on inside and all the growth that needs to happen there. All of these examples, when you focus on being responsible for other people or for yourself, are self-focused, not God-focused. You're being focused, maybe you're be focusing on yourself and do I look good? Am I going to be safe? Is someone else going to get me? Or for those who watch others too closely, I also think that's a way of being self-focused because you think that you can be the one to save them. You can be the one to protect them. But that's not your job. Christ has already done that. That is Christ's responsibility to take care of. But I don't think this is a passage about judgment. In fact, it's not even a passage about idols or about meat. It's a passage about love and practicing that love in the body of Christ. I like the song that we sang this morning, the um, Behold, Behold What Love Can Do, because I think that is a powerful message, and it's talking about the love that Christ has shown us, but also that love is meant to change us and flow out of us. Um, there's lines in there about like accepting other people or helping, and sometimes that can only happen with other human beings. So because of Christ's love, we are also called to see what love can do to make all things new. That's part of our calling as Christians. So I'm going to read the beginning of this passage again. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So it starts off with this now about food sacrificed to idols, and then what is Paul doing? He talks about knowledge and love. I thought we were talking about idols here. This makes no sense. If you've read Paul, this is normal, right? Sometimes you're like, I, he just makes no sense in general. But I think he's actually trying to get at something here. Paul says he's going to talk about idol food and talks about knowledge and love. And knowledge and love come up again and again in this passage and actually throughout the whole, the whole book of Corinthians. Um, and Paul makes them sound like opposites, like you can either have knowledge or you can have love. 
I don't know that they're necessarily opposites, but he's, he's making this extreme to make a point. I like this line from the First Nations translation of the New Testament. It's also written in your bulletin. Knowledge makes big heads, but love makes big hearts. And I think that's a wonderful reminder of what Paul is trying to get at. What does it mean to have a big heart? We live in a society that values knowledge. Well, maybe information, knowledge. You might feel like you're missing out if you didn't hear yesterday's sports scores, or maybe you're waiting anxiously for the results of the New Hampshire primaries. We honor people with specialized knowledge who can build the Hubble telescope or manufacture electric cars. We even value knowledge so much that we carry around devices that can answer any question we have at any moment. And yet, I don't know about you, but I don't think this knowledge has made people more loving. In fact, there's great concern that upcoming generations feel more disconnected and less accepted. And that's exactly Paul's point. He writes in verse 4, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, see, he's trying to get back here. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. And these lines, an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one, many commentators think he's quoting what the Corinthians said to him. It's not always clear, but Paul agrees with these statements, whether they're his own ideas or whether he's quoting the Corinthians. He says, yeah, an idol really means nothing in this world, and there is only one God. But even though this is Paul's belief and he shares it with them, he doesn't commend them for this knowledge. He doesn't say, good job, you've learned that idols are not gods, you are free to do what you want now, this is great. No. Instead, Paul comes back with something else that they need to learn. Like, okay, you've got that. Now let's move on to the next step. So Paul writes in verse 7, But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Paul says that some of the new Christians had eaten in the temple of idols for so long that when they enter the temple again and do the same practice, they return to that mindset they had where the idol is the God that they are honoring. Remember, religion was about doing. And so when they ate the sacrificial meat, they were practicing their religion. That was what you did. No matter what Paul had taught them to believe, And this connects to, I think, the themes that Joshua has been bringing up the past few weeks, where last week he talked about the soul and before that about the body. What we do with our bodies affects the way that we think, affects our will, but Paul is taking it one step further. What we do with our bodies, what we do with our souls, is also affecting our body of believers. We are all connected to part of this. And so that's why he brings up this idea of love. In a commentary on 1 Corinthians, Kenneth Bailey writes, Love must influence how you use your knowledge. So knowledge in itself is not bad, but it must be influenced by love. Paul says later in his letter, If I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. And I can stand here and I can tell you that knowledge is not as important as love. I can tell you that love matters more. And yet as soon as you walk out of here, you'll see businesses across the street that represent financial success or business chains up and down the road that are spread out all over the United States that represent successful business knowledge. You'll go back to school where there's tests and projects that are going to test your knowledge. At work, your colleagues will challenge your knowledge, or maybe customers will rely on your knowledge 
to fix their car or to plan the perfect wedding. We can't get away from the fact that our society values knowledge. And knowledge really in itself is not bad. But like the Corinthians, we can learn a lesson from Paul about how to integrate love into what we do. Ancient Corinth was littered with temples of these different deities. If you stood in the market center of ancient Corinth and turned in a circle, and looked anywhere in 150 yards, you would see temples to the following, either temples or statues to the following. Dionysus, Bacchus, Fortune, Poseidon, Apollo, Aphrodite, Hermes, Zeus, Zeus of the underworld, Zeus most high. I didn't know there was a difference. Apparently there is. And a place to worship the muses. And let's not forget also this huge temple of the imperial cult. The Corinthian Christians were bombarded every single day with reminders that others were not seeking the one God, just as we are bombarded with these reminders today. In a city where people had these constant visual reminders of deities and loyalty to those deities, they needed alternatives. They needed new practices, such as communion, that served as rituals to mark their loyalty to God, not to any other powers in society. They needed icons as reminders of their loyalty to God, not idols as reminders to the worship of false gods. So let me explain what I mean by icon first, because I'm using that word differently from the way that it's often used. Uh, Joshua and others have sometimes shared visual, visual icons, pictures that represent some aspect of God. So I'm expanding that definition beyond pictures or visual images. I stumbled onto this definition by author Madeline Langle, and I really like it. An icon is something I can look through and get a wider glimpse of God and God's demands on us, Elle's mortal children, than I would otherwise. She talks about icons as windows to God. Then she contrasts it with idols. So icons are these windows to God, things where we can see God more clearly, and idols are anything that obscure our view of God. So it's time for the audience participation part of the sermon. I know you didn't know this was coming, but I think all of you will be able to participate fully. First, your first task is I want you to look at the ceiling. Take some time and notice what you see. Some of you have probably never looked at it before. Some of you probably stare there all the time. <laughs> you probably see wood, lights, Maybe you'll notice the projector. Maybe you'll notice the beauty of the wood or see some flaw in the ceiling. But now I need some answers from you. What is on the other side of that ceiling? What's beyond it? And I actually want your answers, not a hypothetical question. Shingles? Sky? Roof? Rain? Did you say flowers? Clouds. <laughs> that makes more sense. <laughs> How do you know that those things are there? You've seen them before? Through, through the ceiling? From outside. So you've had a different perspective that takes you out of where you are right now. And because you've had those visual experiences, or maybe you were on the roof and had that personal experience, you know that those things are there, right? So you know because of prior knowledge based on experience that that's probably what's outside. We don't think it has changed that much in the past hour or so since you were outside. Now, okay, yeah, you can look back at me if you haven't already. Just 
to make sure. Very few people would say that they've seen God. So if I think about what is God, sometimes it can feel like looking at that ceiling and our view is blocked and we don't know what's on the other side. We're not sure what's there. We don't have that visual experience or that prior experience of actually being able to see God. Maybe you've had times of interaction with God, but sometimes it doesn't always feel like it's the same. Anything that obscures our view of God is an idol. It keeps us from seeing and knowing what's on the other side, especially if we haven't had experience there. Now take a moment and look out of a window. Sorry for those of you on this side of the church, but (laughs) what do you see beyond the window? What's on the other side? Trees, air. You can see the air? (laughs) Somebody has good sight. (laughs) Sorry. What? Fog. What else was there? Telephone wires. Buildings, yes. I know that all I can see is like the spout over here and like brick. It's very wonderful. (laughs) So how do you know that those things are there? Because you're seeing them, right? Like your eyes are telling you that those things are there. When you have knowledge of what's outside of yourself and you've been given this glimpse through a window, that's like an icon. It is something that helps you see through to what's beyond. It can help you understand God or see things differently than maybe you did before when you, things were obscured and blocked. Icons can take many different forms. They can be pictures, such as the more traditional icons with um, images of divine beings or people encircled by golden halos. But icons don't have to be beautiful or rare or even tangible objects. An icon can be almost anything that leads you to see God more clearly. The Bible can be an icon. When you read the words of 1 Corinthians, it can open up something new about the way God interacts with humans. Words can be icons. They can be beautiful, and they can bring joy when they are arranged in such a way that makes you think of something so much differently. I'm also told that numbers can be icons. Not for me, but hopefully for some of you. The way numbers are arranged and the mathematics of the universe can reveal God's creative order. Sometimes other people can be icons. They can help us see God more clearly, a child, a friend, a family member, even a stranger. At different times, these people can reveal God to us. They can become a window to God's love and grace and compassion. I'd like you to do one more thing. Look out the window again, but this time, look at the window itself. Look at the glass panes. Look at the casing around it. What do you see? Again, not a hypothetical question you can answer. What do you see? Fine craftsmanship. craftsmanship. (laughs) All right. Whoever had the windows installed, there you go. Evelyn. They're open? You see that they're open? Yes. There's screens? Glass? I heard something, but I don't know what it was. Locks. Okay, there are locks in the windows. Hinges. There's always one fly that's flying around. Does anyone have the window that has the fly on it? I feel like you, oh, it's up here. Okay. <laughs> it's not, you get no prize if there's a fly on the window, so it's okay. But yeah, when we start looking at those things, we can't really see what's beyond because we begin to focus on the window. And in this way, 
I want to say that sometimes those icons that can allow us to see through to God can also become an idol because they can stop us from seeing what's on the other side. Sometimes, maybe you see the flaws in the window. Maybe there's spots on it are dirty. I think they look pretty good right now. But, you know, maybe those screens can make things a little bit blurry or hard to see. And in this way, the icon that we take that has revealed God to us has blocked our view of God. This can happen with any of the things that I mentioned earlier. The Bible, which tells us about God's work with humans, can become a battleground among Christians who disagree over interpretations or how things should be lived out. Images or words or numbers can be things we obsess over instead of taking our worry or our creativity to God. Children, partners, friends, pastors can and will disappoint us. And if we equate them with God, we damage not only our relationship with that person, but our relationship with God. And this is exactly Paul's warning to the Corinthians. We also learned about this last week when Paul wrote to the Corinthians that those who had wives should live as if they had none, those who were happy or mourn as if they did not, those who had possessions as if they did not have them. And I like Joshua's summary of that in saying that even good things can become bad if it distracts us from God. So even those good things that could be icons and open up our view to God can become idols if they distract us from seeing God. But when we use icons in the right way, they help us see God more clearly. I started with this example of this postcard that my grandma had from my great-great-grandparents, and I think it's an icon of God's love because it shows that Maris, my great-great-grandfather, set aside for the, his work for the moment and thought about someone else, thinking about what that person would care for and sent a note in the best way that he could. It shows that love means considering what another person needs or wants as your first priority. It's not just romantic love. That's not really what what uh, Paul is talking about here, even what I'm talking about. But it's a type of love that Christ showed for us in thinking about what we needed most and giving up Christ's self for us. That's what Paul says. Your family members in this room, these are the people for whom Christ died, the people for whom Christ loved to the extreme. And then Paul concludes what he's writing in this short passage by making this message very personal to himself. Verse 13 says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my Christian family member to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul, who has all this knowledge, Paul, who is the one who taught the Corinthians that idols are nothing, Paul, who taught them that God doesn't care what you eat. It's not about laws. It's not about regulations. It's not about following them exactly. This is Paul who said all of this, who has all this knowledge. But Paul, even with his knowledge, has love, and he is personally willing to give up eating meat for the sake of his Christian family members. Paul says that any knowledge and any law pales in comparison to God's love through Christ Jesus. And I think that's why Paul doesn't give a law here. He focuses on love, because if he gave a law, that would become an idol. How closely are you following that law? Did you get it right? Did you get it wrong? Did you not? Paul says, no, love is way more important. We're going to take communion in just a moment, so this would be a good time to go get the kids, I believe, because they're joining us for communion this Sunday. The Corinthians would have had a shared meal together, similar to the temple meals, but this meal was centered on Christ, or it was supposed to be. Communion can be an icon, as I mentioned, a window to God's unending, unconditional love, and it's a meal that was meant to be eaten together. Having freedom in Christ means we are free to love others with the self-giving love that Christ showed us. Our love is meant to encourage and strengthen others, not to pull them down in the face of our puffed-up knowledge.
I say this part of Paul's letter is primarily about love, but it's about love within the body of Christ. Today, we have the body of Christ represented in many different ways, by the women's choir, by those who played instruments, by those who read scripture, who gave announcements, anyone speaking to you from the front, those of you sitting beside you, those who greeted you, if you were here for breakfast, those who made the food, cleaned it up, those who you ate with. We are all the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is represented by each one of you. As we take communion together today, I'm going to read a passage from later on in this letter to the Corinthians where Paul explains what it means to share this meal together as Christians, not as people who have go to the temple meals. Let's see how much more we have to go before the kids come up. All right. <laughs> okay. And then, obviously, we're going to wait for the kids. But then, as you come up, you will be invited to take the bread and the juice and take them back to your seat. As you do that, here's my challenge for you. Notice one person. It doesn't matter if you know that person or not. Notice that one person who is part of the body of Christ, and if you're able, say a prayer for that one person, since they are your Christian family members here in this church.